Good morning. So good to see all of you, and uh, it's good to know that there's so many people right now worshiping with us in different locations, really all around the world. It's kind of exciting, and um, I want to say hi to the people like at Bet's Nursing Home and Smith Farms who are watching this. Hey, uh, we love you guys, uh, and we're so glad that you can join us. We just started a series. Today is the first one called Last Words, where we're looking at uh, prominent Bible, Bible figures who at the end of their life or towards the end of their life, it's the last thing, not, like we don't know the last thing they said, like right before they actually kicked the bucket, but except for Jesus. But the last thing they wrote, the last prominent thing that they wrote, um, and today we're going to look at the last words of Paul. Paul is one of my favorite Bible figures. He is like the man. He, he, like, totally. I love reading stories about, about what Paul did. Here's one. He was in Ephesus. Acts 19 tells the story of Paul. This is the kind of guy Paul was. Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And in Ephesus, the ancient city of Ephesus, there was uh, the temple to Artemis, which was like a wonder of the world. And um, there was a whole lot of like, silversmiths and metal workers that made their living off of selling, selling jewelry and coins for Artemis, for this false god. And Paul was preaching the gospel and saying, oh, those aren't gods, you know, Jesus. And there was a following, people started following Jesus. And the guys that, whose livelihoods depended on people worshiping this false god, they were like, we can't have this. And so they incited a riot in the city of Ephesus, full-fledged riot. They got like, hey, did you hear, did you hear, Paul, 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 Paul. And there was a riot incited. They all came to the stadium, right? So there's thousands of people in, this, in a stadium in the city of Ephesus, like a theater. And they were all started shouting, there's no God but Artemis. There's no God but Artemis. And they're like shouting, and they're, like, they're all there because they hate Paul. They hate Jesus, but they're mad at Paul and what Paul has done. And what's Paul do? First of all, what would you do? I'd be like, can I get an evac? Like, is there a back way out of here? But when Paul hears that a whole bunch of people that don't like God have assembled together, he says, I can go preach. Yes, let me out. Let me go preach. Let me go preach. I got this. All he, God clearly put all this together so I can tell them about him. And he wants to go. And it took all of his buddies, like, to hold him back. Like, no, 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 man. You, like, they're there because they hate you. They will kill you. Chill out. It's better for you to just let this one go, and you'll have another chance to preach than to die today trying. Just chill out. And Timothy, who we're going to read about, was probably one of those guys like, hey, well, hold on. We love you, Paul. We don't want you to die. But he wanted to go. And that wasn't the only time that Paul wanted to face opposition. People were ready to kill him, and he's like, really? People are together? Let me preach. This is my chance. I want to be Paul when I grow up. Like, like, that's pretty cool to have that kind of guts. I want to be, anybody else like, like have an inner Paul? Like, that would be great. I want, to, I want to be like that. People want to kill me? Like, God's, God's with me. Let's do it. I wish I had that kind of courage. So anyhow, Paul, after that story, Paul left Ephesus, and he left this guy named Timothy in charge. He was a, a younger guy, Pastor Timothy, um, and he wrote two letters to Pastor Timothy, and we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. You can start turning there if you want. 
So in 2 Timothy, let's look at who this book was written to. Who was 2 Timothy written to? To Pastor Timothy. No question about it. However, even in this passage, the last, book, the last verse of 2 Timothy, it, Paul writes the words, you all. Grace and peace be to you all. Which implies that he expected this personal letter to Timothy to be read to the whole church. So does this book apply to us? Yes, it does. You've got to see yourself as a Timothy, or else this whole message, everything I'm going to say, is going to be just kind of stupid for you. To, like, this is dumb. Unless you can see yourself as Timothy. So I want to help you see yourself as a Timothy. Um, see, unlike Paul, who had guts of steel, apparently, Timothy, there's some clues in the Bible that tell us that Timothy was more timid. Timothy second-guessed himself. Timothy didn't... Like, like, Timothy would have been looking for the evac if everybody w- was hoping to kill him. There's some clues in the Bible that tell us Timothy is not quite the same personality as Paul. In First and Second Timothy, especially in Second Timothy, Paul, Paul is constantly elbowing Timothy like, hey, just bolden up and do what you know you're supposed to do. Phrases like, command people not to teach false doctrine. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Like, you need to say that when the other person is walking in a spirit of fear. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Things like, so don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't let anyone else look down on you because you're young, Timothy. He's constantly pumping Timothy up so he has the courage to go do what God has called him to do. Are there any inner Timothys? Anybody got an inner Timothy? Sometimes you just, like, like you don't want to go up in front of a crowd, You'd rather not, but to that person, to that person, Paul wrote, hey, don't be embarrassed. Hey, don't be ashamed. You got to see yourself as a Timothy or else this message is going to be kind of stupid. You got to see yourself as a Timothy. Turn to the person next to you and say, hey, Tim. This letter, that, like how cool is it if you're actually sitting next to Timothy right now? Like, like well, hey, you just, it wasn't odd at all. This letter was written to Pastor Timothy, but the advice absolutely applies to every Christian. Here's why. I'm going to prove it. 1 Peter 2.5, the first bit says this. Go ahead and put it up. 1 Peter 2.5, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. See, in the Old Testament, a priest had two things, two responsibilities. They have direct access to God. They could worship God directly. Everybody else had to work through them to worship God, but they had direct access to God. And number two, an Old Testament priest had the responsibility of serving other people. They had the responsibility of carrying God to other people and, and serving them in this way. And according to 1 Peter 2.5, we are priests. We have direct access to God. And we have a responsibility to carry God to the people around us by way of serving them. That applies to us. We are a priest. We are priests. So if you're a Christian, you're a priest, and those two things are true of you. And you may not be called to the ministry vocationally like Pastor Timothy was, but you are indeed called to ministry. Every Christian is called to ministry. And so here... Here, Paul is giving Timothy 
ministry advice. And since we all are called to ministry, maybe you're called to to ministry as an accountant. Maybe you're called to ministry as a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're called to ministry right now as a student. Maybe you're called to ministry as a factory worker. But you have ministry. We are all called to ministry and to carry the love of God to the people around us. Since we are called to ministry, this ministry advice applies to us. So repeat after me. I, I, that was so weak, I I am am Timothy. Timothy. There you go. Hey, Tim. Advice to Timothy applies to us because we are called to ministry. We're going to get started here. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. When Paul says charge, it's not advice. I give you this advice. No, no. That that same word, charge, in Greek could have been translated warning. And other other places in the Bible, it is translated warning. There is some gravity to what he is about to say. So here we go. I'm going to give you today nine last words of Paul's ministry directive. This is his directive. I give you this If you have a calling into ministry, I give you this directive. These are his nine nine last words. Here's number one. Proclaim God. Proclaim God. Proclaim God. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Preach the word. I know there's a lot of people out there, probably some people sitting in this room right now, that don't like the idea of speaking out. And I hear you. I get it. I hear you. I wanted to make, like I almost did it. It was in my, in my draft of this sermon. I actually wrote out that I was going to call point number one, do your ministry, whatever it is. But then I'm, I'm like looking at it. Like that's not what the Bible says. That's not. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. And although I totally agree with that sentiment, We should preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. I totally agree with that sentiment. But in 2 Timothy 4.2, that's not what Paul is saying to Timothy. That's not what he told him. He said, proclaim, preach, open your mouth, be vocal, preach the word. So I call it number one, proclaim God. Sometimes we can proclaim God with our actions as well. But there's a... You see, because we know Timothy, there's clues anyway, that Timothy was introverted, a little quiet, didn't quite have the guts of steel that Paul had. If we identify with that, we can't sidestep what Paul's trying to say to somebody like that. Paul is saying it to that guy that doesn't want to be bold. Proclaim God. Proclaim God. That doesn't mean... Walk around just being a jerk, okay? Don't do that. Don't walk around being a jerk, preaching your opinions. We preach the word. We proclaim God. We have truth that we can proclaim, not just opinions. Uh, Can can everyone do this with me? Hold up your hand. Now take your index finger and your thumb, put it together. I'm going to teach you some sign language. This is sign language. It's like you're holding a seed. And now I want you to take that seed and do this two times. Straightforward. Bum, bum. That's American Sign Language 
for preach. You have a seed and you're putting in some. I think that some of us think the idea of proclaiming God is, you know, something happened. Now, nah, if, if your kid comes home with drugs, proclaim God. Proclaim God. There is some truth, there's a seed of truth that you need to instill. You're called to do that. That's your ministry. My kid told me the other day, there's a monster in my closet. I didn't even get up. I just looked up, like over up on the stairs. You turn back around, you go look in that closet and say, in the name of Jesus, get out. I went back to looking at my, whatever I was doing. I forget. And he goes into his room and I hear a song that we sang last year in kids ministry. Fear, get out of here. (laughs) Proclaimed God. I preached the truth. I had a seed and I had to put it in. If your boss tells you to do something shady, proclaim the truth. I'm sorry, I'm not able to do that. I can't, I'm not going to lie for you anymore, sir. Proclaim the truth. You're not proclaiming opinions here. We're proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Here's number two. Second charge. Stay on duty. Stay on duty. 2 Timothy 4.2, the first part says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. You know, there's seasons for everything. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes doing this is easy. Proclaiming God is easy. Sometimes it's out of season. It's not so easy. But what do you do? Plant the seeds. You plant the seeds. You keep going. You plant the seeds. Christians don't get to go off duty. The ministry of a Christian is to represent God at all times, not just Sundays, not just when drivers are polite. When they're not polite too. Yeah, you're laughing because you know what I'm saying. Not just when you're treated fairly, but at all times. That's who I am. I don't, I don't get to take a parenting break. It's part of who I am. I, I am a dad. I love being a dad. It's part of my identity. Is, is, um, is, is I get to, like my identity is found in Christ and because of that I get to have kids and pass on my my faith to spiritual children and my actual children. And when a kid wakes up in the middle of the night sick, it is my duty, part of my identity as a father, to handle it. Or if we're honest, to wake up my wife. (laughs) (laughs) She's serving this morning. All the dads out there know what I'm saying. Come on, let's be honest. This is a place of truth. I don't get to take a parenting break. It's part of my identity. And Christian, you don't get to take a, a ministry break. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's hard, but we are always called to plant the seeds. We are always called to be presenting the gospel. You had a bad day? I'll get to that in a second. Suck it up, buttercup. If you had a bad day, just do it anyway. Okay, number three. This one's hard, okay? I gotta do three, four, and five kind of quick. Third charge, correct others. Correct others. 
the Bible, I, and I got I to gotta, like, temper this teaching like, so much because Paul is like really direct with Timothy here. He's like, correct people, rebuke people. In fact, let's read it, 2 Timothy 4.2, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Here's the really awkward part. The first two words there, correct and rebuke, both mean rebuke. So essentially, Paul's saying, rebuke, rebuke, and encourage. Rebuke, rebuke, and encourage. Tear evil down, build faith up. Tearing some stuff down, we're building faith up. I don't like this idea, you know, we gotta correct others, it feels kinda awkward. And let me be clear, this doesn't give you license to go chase people down when they forget to use their turn signal. <laughs> Looking at you, Pastor Todd. <laughs> whatever he's next to me, whatever he's next to me, he says, you didn't use your turn signal. I'm like, sorry. Sorry for anyone I've not used my, I try to use it. Okay, I'm going to do better. But th- this, this point doesn't give you uh, permission to just start yelling. We, we, like, 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 I'm not saying, let's go put flags out there at the corner and say, hey, Bad driver, like that's not the kind of correction that this, that's not what this means, okay? That's, that's not what this means. This is about making someone that you love aware of their sin. Jesus teaches us how to do this and to do this in Matthew 18. Go and point out their sin, just the two of you. It's Matthew 18. Now, I can just imagine some of you are thinking, are you saying that we should judge others? only a little, like, like that would, no, not the way you're saying that, right? Not the way you're saying that. Don't, uh, Matthew 7 teaches us, judge not lest you also be judged, right? Matthew 7 tells us not to, what that's talking about is don't be judgmental. It's talking about just going around and pointing fingers at everyone else without looking at yourself. There's a way to do this that's right. See, that, but, but we should be able to judge. As a Christian, There is a truth that I am called to follow and get behind. As a Christian, there is a truth that I am called to put my life under and be under it. A truth. And in order to follow it, we must be able to acknowledge the difference between right and wrong. There's something that falls under the truth and there's something that doesn't. We have to be able to do that. And so we must be able to judge This falls under the truth, this doesn't. If you aren't judging, you're walking around with a mind like Play-Doh. Again, I'm not saying to walk around saying, bad, good, bad, bad, good, bad. We have to be able to judge what is right from wrong. And when you're near someone that you love dearly, it's biblical to help them become aware of their sin. There's so much, there's so much like padding around this that I need to put in because scripture puts in. Matthew 7 talks about how not to be judgmental, but if you don't judge, you're going to have a mind of Play-Doh. Here's the next bit, number four, rebuke others. Rebuke others. Same verse. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. So so the, the fourth charge is to rebuke other people. Again, this means the same thing as the first one. Rebuke, rebuke. We're building down, or sorry, we're, we're, we're tearing down evil, we're building up truth and faith. And the first one that, that was correct is about pointing out sinful, sinful behavior. This one is about getting people to stop. Here's the deal. Like, the, your motive matters so much here. We rebuke others because we love them and they're running from God. If somebody is running towards a cliff and I love them, 
what do you do if you love somebody who's running towards a cliff? You, you stop them. You get them to stop. If I love them. Again, don't be a jerk. Turn the person next to you and say, don't be a jerk. Type it in the chat. Don't be a jerk. We don't need you out at the corner flagging people down. We, no Facebook trollers in comments. We don't need that. That's not what we're doing. There's ways to do this correctly. Rebuke to the extent that someone you love allows you into their life. If you don't have that relationship, what are you doing? Rebuke to the extent that you're called to it. In fact, I actually have eight rules of engagement. If you want to write this down, you can. Eight rules of engagement for correcting and rebuking. Some of you heard me say rebuke, rebuke, and encourage, and you're thinking, yeah, there's some people I'm really mad at. I'm so glad I just got permission to go yell at them all. No, no, no. <laughs> rules of engagement, eight things. Number one, rules of engagement for correcting and rebuking. It's for Christians to rebuke Christians. Expect sinners to sin. Proclaim the gospel to them, but you're not going to win them to the Lord by telling them how stupid they are. Like, it doesn't work. Number two, don't even try to judge motive. That's not your story. Number three, if you can't love and be loving, keep your mouth shut. 1 Timothy 5.1, maybe it's 2 Timothy, yeah, 1 Timothy 5.1, tells us not to rebuke harshly. The idea of rebuke, rebuke, and encourage needs to be filled with a lot of padding. Do not rebuke harshly. Treat the person that, that you're talking with like a family member, 1 Timothy 5.1 says. Absolute purity. So if you can't be loving, zip it. What are you doing? That's not, that's not godly. Number four, check your own heart first. Number five, don't rebuke because you're angry. Do it because you love. Number six, do everything Matthew 18 says. I'm flying through these, okay? This isn't a message about rebuking. I just got to, I can't say this verse without telling you all the other things the Bible says about it. Everything Matthew 18 says. Number seven, from this very verse, says we should rebuke and encourage. There's an and there. Rebuke, rebuke, and encourage. Do all three. We point out the sin and we compel to stop the sin, but we encourage to stay holy. That's the next point, by the way. Number eight, be really patient and be really careful. Verse two says that. We should do it with great patience and careful instruction. And that leads me to the fifth charge, encourage others. Encourage others. That's the fifth charge that Paul gives us. Encourage others. We can go ahead and put that up on the screen, please. Number five, yep, encourage others. Uh, and again, I'm going to read just a couple of verses here. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says this, Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time when will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. So we tear evil down and we build up faith with what? Sound doctrine. We build up with sound doctrine. I think this is an interesting translation, sound doctrine. Every time Paul writes about sound doctrine, the word sound is also a medical term of that time. It means healthy. So every time you read sound doctrine in the Bible, you could also think healthy doctrine. I think that's a little interesting. Because I know some people that have true, accurate beliefs but aren't healthy at all. I don't mean physically, but like you can have truth and be unhealthy. I just described how to do it. 
the Bible says you're a loser and a failure. And like, okay, the Bible says that that's a sin, but it is unhealthy for me to just run around and bark at you. The Bible also says you're a holy nation and called. You are God's masterpiece, called to do great works and has, God has awesome stuff for you. Like, that's true too. We should encourage others with healthy doctrine. Let me give you the sixth charge I'm going to keep moving. Keep your head on straight. That's number six. Keep your head on straight. Keep your head on straight. Turn to the person next to you and say, I think he's talking about you. Keep your head on straight. (laughs) Keep your head on straight. And that's that's almost exactly what Paul told Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5. But you, Timothy, go ahead. But you keep your head in all situations. Keep your head on straight. The idea here is that we are to be sober when others have fallen asleep. We are to be alert when others are apathetic. We're to stay awake and realize that the devil is still attacking if others may have ignored it. Keep focused on what matters. Listen, if the devil can't get you to leave the faith, he's going to do everything he can to get you to be useless in it absolutely useless in it. And he's not doing such a bad job, I think, by my estimations. He's not doing such a bad job. He's, pretty, he's had a lot of experience. He's had a couple thousand years to practice. If the devil cannot get you to leave the faith, he will do whatever he can to get you to be useless to it. Distracted, confused, fascinated by anything but God. If you struggle with staring at your phone too many hours in a day, let me tell you, you're, it, it, number one, you should identify that you're struggling. Like, don't, be, don't spend your life fascinated with a, with a screen. Like, use it for what, you know, what you're called to, but don't, like, like you're going to miss opportunities with your kids. You're going to miss reading your Bible you're going to, like, don't, don't look at your phone to the extent that you would miss what God has for you. There's a really great book by uh, John Eldridge called Get Your Life Back. Um, and if that's a struggle for you, I encourage you, get that book and read it twice. Get your life back. But that's how you can keep your head on straight. Let me give you the seventh charge that Paul gives Timothy. Uh, first, I'll, I'll, I'll just show you where it is in the Bible. 2 Timothy 4, 5 says, endure hardship. Endure hardship. I thought long and hard about how I can make a point that would stick in our heads of this necessity to endure hardship. And I, I wanted something really theological that would just sit right in our hearts. And then I decided I didn't know how else to say it, but... Suck it up, buttercup. That's the point. Suck it up, buttercup. Endure hardship. Christians, we will face trials. The Christian faith is inevitably uh, set to face opposition. It's going to evoke it. One chapter earlier, 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's going to happen. Suck it up, buttercup. 
Put your big boy pants on. That's the charge. Many around the globe, this idea of persecution is very, very real to them. Uh, George Barna reports that every six minutes, a Christian is killed for following Jesus in the world. Every six minutes. Killed! And we come home crying because somebody laughed at us for carrying a Bible. Like, there's Christians that are killed for being a Christian and holding their faith. That's real persecution. So, this idea that we should endure hardship, that doesn't apply to us, right? Since we could just ignore that. I don't, I don't think so. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, so we should accept it. But what's our persecution look like? It's probably not our life at risk. But what does suffering for Christ look like? What does it look like to face trials? What does it look like to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? That's what he told us to do. Pick up, pick up your cross. It's hard. We're putting to death our own sin. What's it look like to do that? I think it looks like sucking it up, buttercup. Reacting in a godly manner when you smash your thumb. You're ready to start screaming words that you shouldn't. You're ready to go bark at someone else who has, had no responsibility. Anyone else, like, like you do something stupid and you want to blame your spouse because they, they had to have done it. I can't be the only person. <laughs> Like, I dropped something the other day, and like, I dropped it and made a mess, and I said, doggone it, Lena. She wasn't even in the room. It was my fault. Like, this happens sometimes. Let's react in a godly manner when you smash your thumb with a hammer. Sucking it up, buttercup. What's that look like? Walking out on a lucrative deal when you know it doesn't smell right. If it would be dishonoring to God, walk away. Looks like telling your boss that you won't lie for him anymore. If you're in school and you forgot to study for the test and your teacher is just really, really difficult and just unfair, it seems. And if you don't pass this test, you're going to have to take this class over again. And lo and behold, someone passes you the answers under the table, and you think you hear choir's angels. Ah, and that's demons, actually. Ah, they, they sing, too. What do you do? Suck it up, buttercup. You're getting an F. That's what enduring hardship can look like for all of us. Do the right thing. We do the right thing. That's the charge Paul wants to give Timothy. Do the right thing. Endure hardship. Hardships will come. It's promised to the Christians, but don't be put off by it. Expect it and keep moving. Here's number eight, the eighth charge. 2 Timothy 4, 5, the third part says, do the work of an evangelist. Oh, I'm sorry. Number eight is tell others. I didn't tell you that. Tell others. And the verse that backs it up is 2 Timothy 4, 5, do the work of an evangelist. God gives some people this amazing ability to be an evangelist. Like they have this gift of evangelism. They walk into a room, and like every fifth time they walk into a room, somebody comes up and says, what do I need to do to be saved? It's like, how does that even happen? God just gives them a gift to be an evangelist. It just happens. 
It's a spiritual gift that God's put on that person. God didn't give Timothy that spiritual gift. Yet, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. God may not have given you the spiritual gift of an evangelist. You might not have walked into a room and somebody walks in and says, what do I need to do to be saved? But Paul, I think, would tell you today, do the work of an evangelist. When you're given an opportunity to present Christ and tell someone what they must do to be saved, be ready. We got to do that work. We got to do that work. We got to tell others. I said that like I was from Louisiana or something. Tell others. Sorry. No offense to my Louisiana friends. I'm going to go get some jambalaya tonight. God wants to use you where you are to reach others. It's why we are a Christian. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 explains it pretty well. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can someone believe in the one in whom they've not heard? And how can they ever hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? If you've been waiting for, your, for being sent, here you go, you're sent. We're gonna dismiss in a minute. And you're going to go take the gospel to somebody. How are they going to hear if we don't take it to them? But here's, here's the deal. Just Okay, some little packaging around this. Evangelism probably should not involve arm twisting or arguing. There's no need for that. God's word speaks for itself. We don't need to arm twist. We just need to present in love. George Barna found some very interesting things. He's a researcher. Um, and he found non-Christians, and he interviewed them. A bunch of non-Christians. Non-Christians who want to hear about faith. 62% of those people, uh, they were asked, what, if you were going to talk with someone about faith, what would you want in that person? A faith conversation partner. What would you want in that person? 62% said, this is the number one answer, 62% said, I want someone that listens without being judgmental. But only a third of them knows anybody like that. 50%, the number two answer, 50% said they want a faith conversation partner that does not force a conclusion right in that conversation. They would be open to having more conversations. But only a fourth have ever met a Christian like that. And a great summary that George Barna came out of with that information is this. I'm going to read it because it's in his book, Reviving Evangelism. George Barna says, however willing they may be, Christians' ability to witness for Christ may be impeded by the simple fact that they don't have meaningful connections with non-Christians. Ouch. We got to tell others. We got to do the work of an evangelist. That doesn't mean to bark out things on the street corner. If God's called you to that, go for it. Do it the way God says to do it. But everybody is called to take Jesus to the people around us. Every Christian has that ministry. Tell others. Here's Paul's final challenge, his final directive his charge to Timothy and, and to us. Number nine, do all you can while you can. Second Timothy reads like Paul's last will and testament. He's about to die, and we'll read that verse in just a second. He knows his life is about over. He's an old dude at this point. 
He's been through all of it. And he gives Timothy the charge, and he gives us the charge. Do everything you can while you can. Let's read it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse five, verses 5 through 8. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I'm about to die. Verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on the day. Not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appealing. I'm sorry, his appearing. Do all you can while you can. Imagine speaking to an old man on his deathbed who's lived a life, a full life like Paul. Like, think of the guts this guy has. He's been all over Europe. He's the greatest missionary the world has ever known. He wrote half the New Testament. And he's on his deathbed. What does he say? Grabs your hand. He pulls you in and he says, do all you can while you can. I read in there a little parenthetical, I wish I could go back and I've done more. Paul! What more could Paul have done? He was a beast. Don't miss a chance. Don't miss it. Do all you can while you can. Can we stand together? I want to read the final words of this book, the very last verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 22. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that there would be a great surrendering today. May we be found useful in your kingdom. Here we are, God. We, we want to do something great for you. Do your work in us. Work through us, Lord. Use us as agents of your kingdom, Lord.